Hi there, and welcome to the podcast, Life as a, a show intently focused on helping people find their professional pathway by exploring and unearthing the details of jobs from around the world. I'm your host, Christopher Schoenwald. Our house is burning. This fact is becoming harder and harder to ignore or push aside. Look no further than the increasing frequency of natural disasters that are ravaging all regions of our planet. This crisis, however, did not unfold overnight. No, it did not. The truth is much more discouraging. We've been wreaking environmental havoc on the planet for years, and yet we as caretakers were always willing to shift our resources, time, and attention towards more pressing self-induced catastrophes such as political saber-rattling activities, actual wars, or economic crisis. All the while though, our planet and only home we've ever known was sending us its own warnings and messages about dire changes that were rapidly taking place. Most of us looked away. However, not all were oblivious to the peril we have been setting ourselves up for. There have been scientists and global experts that have been waving red flags for years. And it is only now that such warnings are finally being heard. Fortunately, we have one such climate crisis visionary on the program today, who has been literally dedicating his professional and arguably personal life for years towards educating others on the dangers as well as actions we can take to head off this monumental crisis we all face. Svein Tivadal is a Norwegian-based former director of UNEP, United Nations Environment Program, an environmental ambassador to the Norwegian city of Arendelle. He's also the founder and CEO of Klima 2020, an environmental consultancy based in Norway, which is centered on lecturing and advising businesses and local authorities that want to position themselves alongside and within this green shift that is beginning to take shape. His organization places a particular focus on bridging the gap between climate science, policymakers, and the general public. Svein has dedicated his life to educating the public about global warming and has been doing so before it was the chic thing to do, or arguably before it ever made its way onto the radar of the general public. His background, experiences, and professional engagement reads off much like a climate activist highlight reel. Make no mistake though, all of this illustrates the passion, drive, and determination he has had towards doing his part to ensure that we as planetary caretakers are doing the right things to ensure a sustainable existence. Let me bring you up to speed on some of those said activities. Owner and CEO of the aforementioned consultancy, Klima 2020. Former Assistant Executive Director, UNEP, United Nations Environment Program, where he was responsible for the Division for Policy Implementation and the Division for Environmental Conventions, including the IPCC, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And he was also the Polar Advisor to the Executive Director, Managing Director, UNEP Grid, Global Resource Information Database, which the UN used to bridge the knowledge gap between climate scientists, policymakers, and the public. Svein set up the fifth global center for grid in Arendelle, Norway. 
board chairman and participation for the likes of the Norwegian Rainforest Foundation, Climate Point AS, Climate Compensation Fund, Purity IT, a green IT provider, the Energy Farm International Foundation, and Norfund, Norwegian Investment Fund for Developing Countries. And these are a mere samplings of his board level activities with truthfully too many others to list. And currently, his present activities also include lecturing, writing, and participation in the public debate on global climate, where he has morphed into a true global social influencer on this issue. In fact, he's amassed a base of over 320,000 faithful and engaged Twitter followers who look to find for the most up-to-date and relevant social commentary covering the climate crisis. And finally, Svein has authored respected publications centered on this notion of raising awareness and spurring action towards tackling climate change issues. These publications include Climate in Peril, a popular guide to the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and Green Shift, a handbook for environmentally friendly regions in Europe. With all that stated, Svein, it's an absolute honor to welcome you to the show. Oh, nice to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, yeah. I'm really excited to, to, to get into this. I've had this circled on the calendar for a little while. And uh, like I said, it's a true honor. So yeah. Why don't we just jump right into it, if that's okay? I have... Uh, Go ahead. Yeah, excellent. I have the first segment, something called Coloring Wikipedia, which is basically a segment where I'd like to, to bring listeners up to speed on what it is the guest does. And what I do here is I read off a definition of the guest profession as defined by Wikipedia. And another thing that sort of helps, I think, is it offers kind of this jumping off point to start the discussion. Sometimes these definitions underrepresent what the actual work is all about, and other times are spot on. So let me just read this off for you. And I will warn you here, it is a fairly general definition I've got for you, environmentalist. But within the context of your current past activities and experiences, perhaps afterwards, you can comment. Sound good? Yeah. All right, here goes. Environmentalist. An environmentalist is a person who is concerned with and or advocates for the protection of the environment. An environmentalist can be considered a supporter of the goals of the environmental movement, a political and ethical movement that seeks to improve and protect the quality of the natural environment through changes to environmentally harmful human activities. The environmental movement contains a number of sub-communities that have developed with different approaches and philosophies in different parts of the world. Environmentalists can be described as one of the following, climate activists, conservationists, environmental defenders, greens, and water protectors. So there it is, fine. What do you think about this definition from Wikipedia? Well, <laughs> maybe it is not so important what you call them, but I think what is important is that we have to welcome all uh, groups or uh, categories that would like to do something with a very tough situation we find ourselves in now where the secretary secretary general in the UN is uh, declaring code red for, for the world. I think we can take two approaches. Individuals need to do something. And uh, the more they get educated, uh, the more they do, the less they fly, the more they bike, uh, the, the more they eat vegetable uh, food, the better. But we also need to know that if a handful of us, or if 20 or 30 or 40% did that in an explan a very, very uh, correct way, it wouldn't keep us to uh, the goal. 
because what is needed, it is important and people should do it. But what is needed now to get out of the situation we are in is collective action. For instance, here in Norway, uh, there are more than 100 uh, organizations that every day is uh, trying to do something with the threat of uh, climate change and also nature that is disappearing in a, in a very fast way. So when, so when I'm out and talking to young people, I say that all of you can find an organization that fits with your interests, with your values, with your background. So what I'm telling them is join such an organization. You don't necessarily need to be a climate activist, but if you do that, you do something that is important and needed to, in a way, speed up the green shift, which now we have maybe 10 years left to avoid a climate catastrophe. So, so that is, in a way, my my answer to that. Mm, no, that's well stated. I think, you know, sometimes we get caught up in these definitions and sometimes the, the formal nature of them. And it, it almost acts as like a, a wall for just everyday people that like say, well, you know, that's not me. So that's not something that I necessarily need to worry about, you know, but what you're saying here, of course, is that, yes, this is a job for all of us. And we don't need an official title, essentially, to be protectors of the earth, people who care passionately about the climate issues. We don't need to get hung up on those points. To follow up on that, you know, it's a fact that nobody can do everything, but everybody can do something. That is my advice to the young people. And uh, that would also be my comment to to this kind of sequencing of all these people that uh, is trying to do something. Mm-hmm. It was interesting. I was listening to a, another podcast actually recently, and uh, they were speaking to some climate activists and you know world-renowned scientists. And uh, the podcast itself was called Metaphysical Milkshake, and it was a really interesting discussion. And one of the points that one of the hosts had raised regarding climate change, one of the issues here, as you say, I agree, it's just we need people to get behind these issues. But there's this sort of sense of deniability, you know, and there's kind of these three stages of one being like, well, you know, climate change just isn't happening for the most part. Probably there aren't too many people in that category anymore. Well, hopefully, I mean, there are still a few obviously here and there, but I think we're moving out of that stage, thankfully. And then there's another group here where it's just like, well, you know, we don't need to worry about it. We don't need to make a mountain out of a molehill, you know, we like lots of obfuscation going on and just sort of like hiding some of these issues. And then a third level, at least according to, uh, you know, to what this host had raised, is that there's a lot of people out there that just don't know what to do. Like, there's just like, what can I do about this problem? Like me being this tiny little person on this planet, what can I do? And it's it's almost this giving up sort no, of. But I, all, I often get that question, what can I do? Because yeah. I, I uh, when I'm talking, and, and that's why I'm saying that uh, what everybody can do is to join an organization that is, in a way, suitable for their values, for their background, for their interests. And if they go in there, first of all, they do something, they support something that is needed, a broad engagement, but then they also will learn more. Because if they join such an organization, they these, um, the organization itself will, will provide more information. And, and you know, if you don't have the knowledge about something that is dangerous, you are not afraid of it, or you will not, in a way, be able to mobilize to do something with it. So, so knowledge is extremely important here. And uh, knowledge is coming from media, of course, but it definitely from the schools and, and also from 
engaging yourself in an organization that tried to do something with the problem. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I was leading up to with my point was I, I love your answer. Just that is get involved, attach yourself in an organization that reflects the values that you hold within. And from that, like you said, that's where your knowledge base is going to expand. And then hopefully maybe even you can pass on that knowledge and that experience to others and hopefully inspire action that way. And I think that's quite frankly, that's the way forward that, uh, that we need to start, you know, moving towards, but no, thank you for that answer, Svan. It was really insightful. I guess more on the personal side, in terms of what you do, I listed off your bio, essentially all these different activities, you know, board level activities, and then online social influencing, all these different things. On a day-to-day basis, what do you get up to? I mean, how, how would you structure your day or week around some of these issues? You know, you've got the consultancy work with Klima 2020. You mentioned that I was active on Twitter and... Um... I In the morning, I normally spend an hour, one and a half hour on getting crude international news uh, related to both renewable energy, climate and uh, environment, nature. And then I post, say, um, 10 of the most uh, interesting tweets related to those issues. So those that follow me on Twitter, then they will be updated on on the latest news related to these important issues. So that's part of my day. Then um, very often I have a board meeting. Uh, <laughs> I have learned that uh, the good thing from, from uh, COVID was that we have been much more um, efficient to use tools like Zoom as we, as we do now. So I have um, most of my meetings on Zoom, even if there is no restrictions uh, in Norway for uh, doing whatever related to the pandemic uh, anymore. So that has been an improvement. I just had a meeting with somebody Africa about funding. Interestingly enough, the first solar panel fabric on the African continent. That's one of the things I do then. I have uh, I spend quite a lot of time to um, teach young people. Uh, I go around to schools. We are com- maybe we will talk a little bit more about it later on, but I that is part of my daily work. And um, then I do some consulting. I still work with the municipality of Arendal related to uh, environmental issues. And uh, I also do some advice here and there. So all in all, I, I have a nice time as uh, I'm not retired, but I'm old enough to be retired. And, um, and of course, I'm also a quite active member of the Grandparents Climate uh, Organization in, uh, in Norway. Working with all, uh, I have four grandchildren. I spend time with them, and um, and I also enjoy uh, hiking and walking and and stuff like that. So so life is still good for me, actually. Oh, excellent, excellent. Yeah, and it's it's interesting how all those things tie together, right? And obviously, you have the professional side, but the topic matter that we're discussing today, obviously, climate change and some of these points, they tie in to future generations, your grandchildren, and all these different things that you can, you know, you certainly would not be lacking for motivation from a personal standpoint, but then obviously like in a holistic sort of level too. No, thank you for sharing that. Well, I would like to move into a new segment, something called a Q&A discovery. Basically, we can kind of just continue this, uh, this back and forth. And the first question is one that often comes up. I mean, a lot of listeners always want to know the backstory of, uh, you know, how this particular guest got to this point in their career. So if we could, maybe uh, we could rewind a little bit. I do understand from researching you know, a little bit of your background that you started off as a surveyor for the Norwegian mapping authorities. Now, here's the question. 
obviously you've moved towards climate activism and you've had a wonderful career after your time with the, uh, the mapping authorities. So was that shift towards climate activism, was it like a profound moment in your career or was it something that just gradually took shape along the way? Actually it was, but let me go a little more backwards because I, I grew up on a small farm in Norway. We, we had three cows and a horse and, um, and there was not so many neighbors and uh, it was five kilometers to the school. And the transport we had at that time, that was um, bike and horse. And uh, so it's fantastic to talk to young people about that, because uh, if somebody had asked me 65, 70 years ago about how the world would look like 70 years from now, and I had explained what it is, nobody would have believed me. This is the science fiction. So the development has gone so very fast. But in that situation, I was a lot in the nature. I did fishing. And at that time, nobody had heard, of course, about climate change. And the nature that was around it, that I also fell in love with, was um, something that was there. And there was no thoughts or ideas that this could be jeopardized, that it would <laughs> disappear in the future. So it was... A very safe and fine. Uh, we were not rich, we were not poor, but it was a fantastic uh, kind of way. Why did I become a surveyor? Well, I was, I, I loved the nature, so it was a good idea to go out there and make triangulations and measure the world. And, and then there was a technology shift. And um, I started using, uh, when, I, when I then started working with survey department and others, then uh, at that time, the GIS, Geographic Information Systems, and Environmental Information Systems were coming, and, and uh, where I worked, we were good at that. And, but then the real shift came, and this is the background. When Mrs. Brundtland, our Prime Minister at the time, launched the um, report on, on environment and development, or the Brundtland uh, report, in, uh, that was in 1979. And um, I read that report, and... Since then, I have actually been uh, working with nature, environment, climate every day. And in that report, it was said that this grid system that uh, was there, you mentioned I established the fifth uh, center in Norway, uh, that was a recommendation. And then I, I, I was then setting up that center, which in this case was with a focus on communicating uh, scientific, uh, solid information to the public and to decision makers. And in a way, that is what I've been doing since in very many positions. So definitely there was a, an absolute shift when I read that report and, and took that action. So uh, so since then, I have been working on those issues. Hmm, it's interesting. I can kind of trace things back to one particular moment, in essence, you know, really That's shifting true. the course of your, your career. Do you recall in like any great detail? What like was there anything in particular that still stands out to you now that would be even relevant to today from that report? Well, it principle is, is definitely the same. Uh, it is about sustainable development, and uh, there was a focus on uh, on um, course climate and also on nature in that report, and that we needed to. Uh, really take care of all these issues and not just uh, business development. 
to have a sustainable uh, world in the future for our uh, children and grandchildren. And this was the first time that this was, in a way, really coming up on the global agenda. Mm -hmm. That's interesting how you you really internalized that and took it to a different level. I mean, right now, yeah, obviously... Because there was there was a clear recommendation on this grid center, uh, the, the importance about, um, in a way, presenting scientific knowledge in an understandable form and that was the whole idea and then it grew so the uh, is now um, in the center here now there are more than 50 employees it's still going i, I left it many years ago but it's uh, it's it's very good and i was also setting up centers in poland and in even in georgia and uh, and some other places so mm. that was a period yeah yeah i guess looking back now would be both somewhat rewarding, but then also a bit frustrating as well, I would assume, just based on like what you've just explained there. I mean, 1979, I guess these issues being raised and of critical importance. And these are the same probably issues that you just said of being raised over and over again, great scientific data, lots of information, studies behind it. And yet we're still putting out the same things and struggling at yeah, times to, to really move that agenda forward. Yeah, the, but, the, 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 sad thing, the sad thing is that uh, the good thing is that we know much more now yeah. <laughs> than we knew yeah. 30 years ago. But it, the sad thing is that we don't still, we are not listening to the advice and recommendations from the scientists. Yeah. So the gap between what is needed and what we do is bigger today than it was 30 years ago. And if we had listened to the scientists 30 years ago, we wouldn't have been in the really deep shit that we are in now. That, that's, the, that's the fact, actually. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And actually, that's a really nice segue into my next question, actually. Which is, again, I understand from researching a lot of your tireless efforts working for the UN and, you know, what you were just explaining, setting up these systems, basically, where a lot of this critical information could be analyzed, studied, processed, and ultimately passed on to stakeholders such as governments and policymakers. And of course, that could be, and I'm sure it was rewarding at times, but also you grew frustrated by a lot of this due to a lot of the inaction being taken. And you have these UN stated recommendations. This is what we need to do. And then it just being fluffed off by governments at times. And there was some frustration there from at least what I was researching in your past. And maybe you could speak to that point a little bit. Yeah, I can. Of course, that has been many, many disappointments. Uh, as I said, we have not listened to the scientists. And to, to comment a little bit on the UN, I remember in the last meeting I participated in Nairobi when, uh, when Kofi Annan was there. He was the former Secretary General of the UN. He and it was just before he stepped down as a, as a Secretary General. He, uh, in a way, apologized that uh, the UN had not been able to produce a climate policy according to what the UN's uh, uh, experts and scientists recommended. And that is the um, problem and the challenge because uh, UN cannot do more than the countries, uh, in a way, allow them to do. So uh, that has been too little. And if you listen to what the Secretary General says today, he's more, much more dramatic in his, uh, in a way, warnings to the world that, that and Kofi Annan was at that time. But on the other hand, to comment on that, the way forward is we need to uh, follow the UN track. Because, you know, if the politicians, and there is a movement now, if they are willing to really do something with the problem, we have the framework, we have the, we have the measurements, we have the reporting, we have in the Paris Agreement and in the uh, in the Convention. So, I think the only way we have 
to proceed is to follow the uh, the uh, UN track. But of course, in addition to that, it's extremely important that business and municipalities and national governments and, and other groups is delivering because um, the UN can do something with it and they can do more if they're allowed to do and they're willing to do more. They have the tools and means, but uh, they're also dependent on an engagement from the civil society, from uh, municipalities, from cities, from... Uh, from um, and not from individuals, from right? Just individuals like how we started this conversation. You know, people getting engaged with these matters and taking you know a bit of responsibility for themselves and their own actions, right? I mean, that that plays into it just as much as well. I would say. Hmm. Hmm. Here, here's a quick question to follow up on that. So, you know, some of the things you were just referencing were back in the '90s, and some of these governments just fluffing it off then, and obviously that's been occurring for quite some time. But do you think there has been any progress? Do you think things are getting a little better in terms of that, in terms of some governments being willing to, to take on these issues more and not just, you know, having these wonderful speeches with little action or follow through? As someone who is completely plugged into it, do you think we're making progress in that sense or not a lot? Still? Yeah, we do. We do. We do. Too, uh, too little and too late. And um, it's, um, but there is something is happening, you know. The knowledge about climate and what is happening is becoming clearer and clearer for, for every year. But we knew already 30 years ago about what is happening. And it what is happening today is more or less what has been predicted. But I, I go to my own. I'm doing a lot of, of presentations. And when I started doing the school programs five years ago, I basically said the same thing as I say today. And some people then said that I was uh, preaching a doomsday. But then if you listen to what Biden, to what Macron, uh, to what uh, Johnson said on the last climate summit in, in Glasgow in November, if I had said the same thing five years ago, as I said, then I would have been accused for being a preach for, uh, for doomsday. So they are getting more afraid and they know that, as you started to say, that the, that the house is burning. And this is something that has changed over the last two, three years. So, yes, there is a difference, but still it goes too late and it's not, it's not strong enough. And uh, we are still going towards a climate catastrophe, unfortunately. Yeah, it's, it's code red, right? It's blaring. It's blaring. And you're right. I mean, there's a lot of progress and there is a lot of encouraging you know, movements taking place, but yeah, that, that red light is still flashing brightly. I would say, yeah, I completely agree. That's the impression that I, that I'm getting as well. Uh, unfortunately, here's a bit of a creative question, I suppose. I mean, concerning this point, I mean, I think scientists have been doing this forever, right. I mean, putting out these reports, giving us statistics constantly. And it feels like you know, ostensibly we're getting new reports on a weekly basis, maybe not that often, but it feels that way which is a good thing, you know, ultimately. But if you could magically sort of implant like two or three statistics into the brains of every single human on this planet, you know, regarding or relating to this climate crisis, what would you say? What, what would be these, these stats that every single person should know? Well, <laughs> let me try with fever. You know that um, the warming has been Approximately 1.1 degree, the global warming, since the pre-industrial time. If you compare that with fever, we have 38 in fever. And um, 
that is okay. We live well with that. So maybe people think that every degree in the future will be like that. But then, as it looks now, we are approaching at least two degrees. And that means that if everybody, at least we are going further, but say that we are passing two degrees, which we most likely will do, then we have 39 in fever. And, and what the scientist is saying now is that if we do business as it looks like now, as the um, governments are reporting back to um, the climate convention, we are going ahead three degrees. So that means that we have 40 in FIBO and we are going towards 41 because four degrees. So this is the trouble we have. And I don't think people really understand that uh, the warmer it gets, we can use the, this uh, fever example on what is really... Uh, the planet has fever and it looks like it's almost deadly the way we go now. Yeah, yeah. With those numbers, I, I, I've never heard that before, but it's, it's, it's really poignant, I think, and it brings it down to a level where so that anybody no, can No, no, but I can, the figures are like this. If we are going to stop the warming on 1.5 degree, uh, like what... Uh, is the recommendation when this head of society agreed on that in, in Glasgow. We need to, to reduce the um, emissions 50% on the next eight years. It will not happen. If we are going to stop on two degrees, we have to reduce quite a lot, and that is still possible. But if we don't do what we do today, if we put together the uh, pledges that the uh, governments has given to the convention, Last in Glasgow, we will pass 2.5 degrees and approach 3 degrees. And when we now, in a way, analyze the state in the countries, they don't follow the pledges that is voluntary. So we are on a way to between 3 and 4 degrees, and that is between 40 and 41 in fever. That is exactly how it is. We're not functioning at that level. That's what I like about this metaphor. I mean, it strikes home. It hits, it hits hard and it hits fast. I mean, no humans obviously functioning at that level. The planet, we can't expect the planet to be functioning at that level either, right? I mean, if we're putting it into those terms, it's very plain and it's very clear. And I really like that. I think that's uh, it, it's a nice way of making it real. You know, I think at, at the moment, people are being bombarded by all these statistics, which are impactful, should be impactful. But maybe just the the number of them that are coming out, people are just mm, brushing them aside. Well, I've heard this before. I've heard this before. But something like that, that metaphor, I think, speaks to, uh, you know, it, it, it hits differently, is guess what I'm trying to say. Okay. No, thank you for sharing that. Um, I do have another question here. And this one, maybe it's a point. Maybe it's a point I'm trying to make, is that I find, at least in my sort of consumption of information and data and all these things surrounding climate change, the focus oftentimes, and for good reason, of course, is centered on the impacts on us, on humans, on our way of life, on our precious habits, our precious ways of life and living. And obviously, I mean, it makes sense. But I also find this a little bit reprehensible, you know, and I would venture that you would too, because it's not just about us, obviously. There's biodiversity, it's the earth, it's the plants and the animals, it's all these other things that are being affected. And of course, it all ties in to one another. But there's a, a point of frustration, I find, at least for myself, is that it's always centered on us. And I think that's part of the problem of why we have this issue in the first place. You know, somehow, some way along the line, 
we become detached or we put ourselves up on this pedestal, you know, being the dominant species here on this planet. And we've put ourselves in this position that we're here to rule over everything else. And I would venture to guess that say like indigenous groups, for example, on the other hand, had a different sort of connection, a view of ecology, more in the sense that they were interconnected in this web, essentially, of life and living. And they had a special communion with all of that. And I think a lot of those communities have done well. I mean, they're small, obviously, in minority groups in a lot of countries, but they've done well with their ecology. But the rest of us kind of mess things up in our ways of thinking. What I'm trying to get at here is that this is a big part of it as well. It's, it's not just these economic issues or economic models that are at fault. I think there's something greater, something deeper than that. And uh, I would be curious to hear what you think about something like that. Oh, but you know, the nature crisis is uh, <laughs> as severe and as dangerous as the climate crisis. Yeah, it's all tied what in. We are right? doing today, what we are doing today directly or through global warming is to, in a way, uh, reduce nature in a way that in a speed that we have not seen in uh, millions of years. Uh, scientists talk about the, the sixth mass extinction. The last one was maybe, I think it was 63 million years ago in Mexico when a meteor, in a way, uh, dumped down there and the dinosaurs was uh, instinct. But uh, people are not aware how fast this is going. And I mentioned when I was born 70 years ago, everything was fine. And now, you know, things every year, we put an area like uh, Great Britain under asphalt cement through uh, what we do. But also climate change is, in a way, slowly or in speed contributing. A couple of examples. Maybe the most severe thing is that if when we come to three degrees, as I talked about, it's possible, then many scientists say that we will uh, the rainforest will not survive. So... The rainforest in uh, Brazil, will uh, Amazon, will be gone. It will be a savanna, and the same maybe in Congo and in Indonesia. So, and without uh, a rainforest on the on the world, we will probably not survive as humans. So, and when I talk to young people, I explain to them maybe they are not aware, but everything you eat, everything you wear, everything you in your studio there, everything that is around you. Everything is in a way or another coming from the nature. And now there's not so much less. Instead of taking care of it, we are killing it. And that we do parallel with not stopping the climate change and also with putting in new infrastructure and everything. So this is a very, very complicated uh, thing. We have to have both those uh, thoughts in the head at once and we have to solve both the issues. It is still possible if we listen to scientists, but the time squeeze is getting more and more severe and complicated, and it's getting more expensive. So the next generation and the generation after that, they are really, in a way, facing some very, very serious problems. There is no doubt about it. Yeah, I completely agree. And like I said, I, I, I really think, I mean, it's these two things. It's these economic models and policies and, and ways that we sort of place ourselves within the environment. I think it's that mind shift and change. And I think maybe that's what you're alluding to there in terms of the youth coming through and having a different mindset. Maybe us not necessarily being the rulers of this planet, but being part of it, you know, not being the ones who are making all the decisions and, and controlling it, but 
you know, we, we are tied into it. Like, like I said, this is web essentially. And it's, it's, it's that, I think that we have to start shifting more towards, and there's a lot of, obviously there's economic benefits to doing things that way as well, but we've been stuck on this other side of like, you're speaking of infrastructure, you know, chopping this down to build this up, which is going to make our life more convenient or this or that. I can make another point there that is similar to what, what the UN and the world is doing on climate change, because the, again, the UN have decided that we have to solve this problem. We need to protect 30% of land and sea. And if we do that, then nature comes back and can support us in the future. And this should be done before 2030. Another thing that uh, they have agreed upon, the Nature Convention, is that we need to rewild, restore nature that has been destroyed. And they have decided that we need to rewild, to restore 15% area that has been uh, destroyed within 2025. And we are not doing that as well. So this is we have the climate convention. We have the nature convention. We will get. Uh, we have got a nature uh, panel, and in the same way as with climate, politicians are not listening to advice from scientists when it comes to nature, and that nature is disappearing, and that we have the sixth mass extinction. And these things is closely related because it's impossible to solve the climate crisis without a robust, solid, and fresh nature. So, again. The challenges are just increasing around us. Yeah, I'd venture to say that most of our talk to this point, you know, 30, 35 minutes in here has been a lot of doom and gloom, and rightfully so. We can't avoid a lot of what's going on, and we can't, you know, hide from these facts or details. But also at the same time, I've also read that part of this, these doom and gloom sort of prognostications are good in a sense. I mean, they are good in a sense that it shows us exactly what we need to do. Maybe what hasn't been working and it offers, you know, maybe hope in that sense of, okay, well, it offers a roadmap of, okay, this is the problem here. We need to address this. So you can take it that way, I suppose, too. And I guess this would be a nice segue to return to something that you brought up earlier, which is your involvement with youth. And I think that inherently sort of offers a degree of optimism. And maybe you could speak a little bit more to that. I really like to do that because over the last four or five years, I have been around in Norway on I think 200 schools, and I'm, we have met 25,000 uh, students, young students. And we have a kind of presentation called Hope or Catastrophe. We are going towards a catastrophe, but there is hope and there are solutions. And um, here we are coming to the green shift and so forth. But um, one thing that I really tell the young people, and I, I love to do that, is that they have been more important than they are aware of over the last three or four years. I tell the young people about Greta Thunberg that um, when she was 15, she's now approaching 19. We are sitting outside the uh, parliament in Sweden with uh, a pamphlet every Friday saying that I'm going to sit here every Friday until you have decided on a policy inside the parliament that gives me and my fellow students a safe life in the future and then in the meantime and up to now she and, and despite in a way the pandemic she got millions of young people with her around the almost every every country so i can tell them that if they hadn't done this big effort the world would have been much farther away from reaching a solution but now when these world leaders 
finally, as I said, talk more dramatically about what is happening. You know what they use as an argument in, in the big conferences? They talk to they talk about what the young people have been doing over the last three years. So I'm uh, I'm asking that if anybody in this class or in this audience, there are many students, uh, if anybody of you have participated in this, I say warm thank you, because then you have really contributed to do something with a very dangerous uh, situation, and you have supported the uh, your uh, other in the generation. So I like very much to do that because it is in a way planning that they don't have so much money. They don't have definitively they that vote yet, but still they have actually contributed a lot to do something which is needed to change the pace in the development that we see now. They are receptive and we have discussions after we have had our lecture and they um, even now when I start, I ask them about how many of you are worried about this, what is happening to the nature that is disappearing fast and the global world is getting warmer. And that varies. But say when we started some years ago, it was fewer. And now it's up to, it's say, between 50 and 80% that is worried in, in that little poll. Then, of course, also I'm talking to the schools. But then I say to the teachers that you know that in Norway, according to what the teachers should teach in these issues, sustainable development should be in any uh, curriculum. And, and now we have been on 200 schools, and I, we can see that this is treated very differently from school to school. So my recommendation goes to the uh, teachers that you have to do more here, because if Maybe those people that didn't um, uh, raise their hand, the reason for that was that they didn't know too much about it. And that uh, if they don't know anything about it, uh, why should they worry? Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Great hope here in, in, in the young people. Yeah, I think so. I, maybe a month or so back, I had a climate technology based guest who came on and we were talking on a similar topic about youth. And uh, she had said something along the lines of what's encouraging to her, at least, is that if you were to stop a seven or eight year old on the street right now and ask him or her, you know, about this problem, climate crisis, or you know, what were some of the issues here that we're facing? Probably most of them would be able to tell you something about it, maybe on a rudimentary level, but they would have a certain level of awareness, at least even at a young age as that seven or eight years old. Whereas, say, somebody in my generation or your generation, obviously, that was not on our radar one bit, not at all, I would say. And that, to me, something as simple as that gives me hope. And to your point as well of, you know, some of these movements with youth, what I find encouraging is that they call out some of these leaders. They're not afraid to stand up or even their parents for some of their actions. And uh, I think there is a power associated with that. And uh, we've been lucky to have some, some pretty great role models within youth movements that have made these things okay to do in essence. So yeah, it, there is some positive developments here uh, going on. Maybe we could shift over into another segment here, something called a water cooler story. And this is a segment basically where I just ask guests to indulge listeners with a story relating to the topic of discussion. So yeah, I'm really eager to, to hear what you uh, have for us, Fine. If we go back to the moment when I really knew that we had to do something and started to use technology to communicate environmental information that when I read the Brunton report, I would go back to the, um, the Rio meeting on environment and development in 1992. Because then I had been working in, in this for two, three years. And in Rio, the, um, everybody 
all countries came in with a state of the environment report. So it comes in tons and tons and tons and tons of paper. But in the meantime, in the new grid center where we worked with the UN, we came to Rio with four diskettes instead of um, tons and tons and tons of paper. So we were able to... Um, to present the first digital state of the environment report at that uh, summit in Rio. And at that time, that was a big thing. We had a big launch with the prime minister and others. And we followed up a few years later with um, with launching the first state of the environment report on internet, uh, where Minister of the Environment did, did launch it. So it was interesting to use technology to try to, in a way, implement the, the mission about bridging the gap between scientists and uh, and the public and not the least the decision makers. So that was one issue. I have had so many in my life, but I I, I still remember that very well as it, should, as it uh, would have been yesterday. That was back in 1992, and it was just two, three years since I, in a way, started working with these important issues. It must be interesting in the sense that, say, within your consultancy, and noticing a lot of the uh, the technological change and development that's come along, that being a perfect example back in 92 and how that was probably a game changer in a lot of respects. But now, say within this whole climate tech industry as well and all the change that's happening there. And again, I think that would probably be something that we could have a degree of hope towards. I mean, tech alone isn't going to solve the problems, but there is something to it that I think it's part of the solution, at least. And you probably witnessed a lot of change along those lines as well. Maybe you could speak to that. Yeah, well, but we have also, yes, it is much more easy to share information. Uh, we have this meeting today. We are sitting here. You are in Japan. I'm in Norway. These things work very nicely. And updated, solid information is much easier available at any time. There is some backsides also, also so because you have uh, there has been issues with fake news. So these things can also be used for things like that. And when I again go back to my schools, we often get questions about, yes, but I've seen on the internet that uh, an EV is not better than a petrol car and blah, 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 blah. So, of course, that goes broader than, than um, climate and, and biodiversity. It goes, in a way, uh, to the top sort of politics and elections and everything. So, as I said, there is a dramatic change in, uh, in the world. And, and another thing I talked about when I was on the small farm here and had a horse. I didn't have, but my grandparents had three cows and a horse. And, and then uh, here are we today. And, and I talked to the young people about this has gone extremely fast. But if I should say something to the young people about how what would the world look like another 70 years from now is absolutely impossible. I don't think and can say what is the world in 30 years. So but we need to 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 use the knowledge we have at least to make the platform to survive as good as possible. And then we have to do something with the climate crisis and the nature crisis because if we don't do that, then uh, it will in a way be it will be an other world. A world without rainforest is, uh, is, everybody would know that that is very complicated. Yeah, yeah, no, completely agree. I'd like to, if we could, maybe return to this point of technology. I and mean, you just outlined some of, some of the dangers with it. Yeah, some of the great things with it, but then also some of the dangers. But in terms of, I guess, some of the, the more positive sides to it, to a degree here, you know, we have economic models that are kind of taking shape, cyclical economies, regenerative philosophies. On this program, for example, next week, I'm having a guest from a venture capital firm that's focused on early stage climate tech companies. 
that have these visions and models of going out there and trying to affect positive change. So there's an economic model attached to it, but then there's also something fulfilling about it as well. And I think this is part of the solution. Of course, we need this and it's going to be something we're going to have to rely on to a degree. But also at the same time, I think it's one of those things too, that we can't hitch our wagons to completely. As I said earlier, there has to be something more to all of this as well, I would say, you know, an ideological shift, if you will. And maybe maybe you could comment to that. I mean, some of the things that you've seen, you know, technologically speaking, but then again, returning to this point of how are we going to marry all of these ideals together? And, and, and is it possible? Can we even do this from your experience and, and your insights? What do you think? Well, I have always been a technology optimist, and uh, there is no way we can solve these crises without technology. So um, I myself, in some of the uh, companies where I'm uh, a member or, or board chair, we are working on the green shift. And of course, that is in a way the future for business. So yes, this is good. This is needed and that should be promoted. Uh, but there is, uh, there is another issue that we haven't talked about, and that is maybe also a little bit complicated, uh, necessarily not to do with technology, but with the green shift. UN is saying that we need to reduce emissions by 50% within 10 years. But they are also saying, environmentalists, maybe that is more difficult. We all, and it's related to what we just discussed, we need to triple the production of renewable energy in the same period. Because if we don't do that, the the fossil industry will still boom. And um, if we... Then triple, we have offshore wind, we have wind, we have solar, we have hydro, we have nuclear. But if we don't do this, then we're not coming out of this crisis. And if we do it, we will, in a way, crack some eggs. So we need to also, at the same time as we are speeding up renewable energy, we need to protect the nature. And there is a contradiction. So I'm working quite a lot with ideas on how those who is, in a way, destroying nature can restore and rewild. And that is something that, in a company today, we are building actually a car battery fabric in Andal, and I'm working with the, with the fabric, with the municipality. But they want to position themselves as the most sustainable battery fabrics in the world. And then they need to do something with the nature. So this will be more and more important for business, that if you do something wrong with the nature, you have to restore it. So um, that is also quite high on my agenda, that this is needed. Because we need the batteries, we need the, the hydro, we need renewable energy production, but we also need to protect the nature. So, And we have answers from scientists, but again, this picture is getting more and more complicated the more we dig ourselves down. So yes, I am a technology optimist. And your question is, in a way, you cannot go ahead without being an optimist. That is what you have to work with all the time. So and if you ask a scientist today, is it possible to up global warming to 1.5 centigrade? They say yes. If you ask them, will it happen? 95% is saying no. And why are they saying no? They are saying no, because they have experienced that um, politicians are not listening to what they recommend or say is necessary. So we have to be better here. I think the time will come. So I don't think that the world will go under. I think the time will come. But um, the point is that it will come so late that it will be extremely expensive 
to uh, do something with it. We found the money when we had the pandemic, COVID. So if we did the same effort, we could um, stop the uh, climate and nature crisis. We just don't do it. But it is possible. Mm-hmm. No, I appreciate that insight. I mean, I think what you've shared today has been you know, a hefty dose of reality, you know, obviously, which is what we certainly need. We need to have these discussions. We need to fully understand the consequences of our actions. But then also, too, I mean, as you said, I mean, we, we can't not do that without also looking towards things in an optimistic manner and uh, and, and having hope. Right. So I think that was uh, it was well said, I would guess, well received or will be well received by a lot of listeners to this program. And I know for myself, I certainly took it that way. I think there's another issue I need to mention, which is extremely important, because the reason why we are where we are is the immense lobbying force and influence from the fossil industry. And the thing is that um, every minute, the fossil industry is subsidized with something like $10 million. And it is subsidized much, much more than the green shift and the renewable energy. So. If we took away the subsidizes, put it into incentives for the green shift, we would solve most of the problems quite immediately. If we stopped deforestation, which is contributing with 20% to the annual emissions, we would reduce emissions immediately with 20% and we would uh, save the rainforest. So uh, this immense swing and and force from the uh, fossil and industry is the main problem, main hindrance for getting into a kind of sustainable future. If it wasn't for that, the politicians would do the other way around. So this is what we need to do. Stop subsidizing fossil industry, give incentives to the um, green shift and production of renewable energy, and stop deforestation. It's possible, but it is not done by individuals. It is not done by the market. We need policy. Because if we had time, we could just leave this to the market. And in 50 years, everything would be electric. But we don't have the time to do it. That's so important that the focus has to be on reducing power and impact of the fossil industry and stop subsidizing. Well, I think that was something that a lot of people were really curious to see. I mean, I'm going to be you know, dating this podcast instantly by bringing this up, but we're what? May right now and the Russian Ukrainian you know crisis what's been going on there a lot of people were saying well this is obviously is unfortunate and tragic and all these terrible things you know emotions attached to this in terms of the climate crisis issue this could be almost a litmus test for a lot of nations for a lot of policymakers governments to really put their foot down and say like no this is the chance for us to really start investing in just what you were speaking about getting away from coal not being as reliant on, say, a country like Russia, and really, like, here's our opportunity to really start shifting, shifting more towards green energy solutions or more, you know, sustainable uh, solutions, wind, solar, and so on. And to be honest, I remember thinking a couple of months back, like, yeah, yeah, I agree. This is the opportunity. This is our litmus test. And as I've been following along, I've seen some encouraging news, but then also it's been kind of balanced out by things that haven't been as encouraging where different places within Europe or North America are starting new coal plants of their own to offset. That is that is correct. But if we had started up renewable energy production some years before, we wouldn't have been dependent on, on coal and oil and gas from Russia. 
in connection with the Ukrainian war, and we would have been in a much, much better position. So this is another thing, another learning. But now there is more, uh, in a way, push on the green shift and renewable energy because of the war, but there is also this increased kind of impact or request for more oil, gas and coal that makes the fossil industry boom. And again, has the result that there is not the necessary progress in producing new renewable energy. So the picture is complicated. Well, again, I've truly, truly enjoyed all this conversation. And quite frankly, I could probably go for another hour. But uh, I am conscious of your time. And I've really appreciated all of your insights, all of your commentary on all of this. And I'm sure, as I said earlier, listeners will have really appreciated all of this by the time they've listened to this full episode. So yeah, I thank you immensely for taking the time and joining the program today. For those interested in learning more about Svein and his work, you can find him on Twitter and join the hundreds of thousands of other followers who benefit from both the sobering commentary as well as the encouraging developments relating to the environment. And he can be found under the handle at T-V-E-I-T-D-A-L. And also you can check out his company, Klima 2020. And for reference, all of this information will be included in the show notes. And if you like today's show, please be sure to share. I mean, I think I mean, the more we can kind of learn about one another, the stresses, the joys, the pressures, all of these things, it helps enhance empathy. And I think if we have that, it kind of reduces that divide amongst all of us. And hey, I mean, that's never going to be a bad thing. You can also rate, review, and subscribe wherever you access your podcast. And head on over to YouTube. I recently launched a channel over there, Life As A where you can catch full video episodes of our conversations, much like we had today. And the interesting thing is we have a slideshow off the top with imagery associated with the episode. And if you do, please be sure to hit subscribe. It is a new channel. Um, We could use a, a bit of love over there. So yeah, really appreciate that. And then finally, don't forget to tune in to the next episode of Life As A, where we'll continue to explore and unearth the details, professions, and the people behind them. I'm your host, Christopher Schoenwald. Until next time, stay curious about life and living.